Hey, Corey here, and this is Everything is Marketing. Other marketing podcasts might give you the highlight reel or focus on a particular industry, strategy, or tactic, but this podcast explores marketing from every angle and allows you to get inside the head of the guest to really understand who they are and how they think. SevyCal is a new scheduling tool that's a must-have for every podcaster. I actually use it to book guests on this podcast, and it's made the entire process a breeze. I can set a limit for how many interviews I do every week, I can open up special availability for guests, and even create personalized links for guests to add a special touch. Create a free account at SavvyCal.com EIM, and also get your first month of a paid account free by using the code EIM. On the show today is Nick Wignall. Nick is a psychologist, writer, teacher, and podcaster. I wanted to bring him on because Nick is one of the top publishers on Medium and one of the more successful creators I know personally. Over the years through consistent writing, he now gets hundreds of thousands of visitors to his blog every month and has tens of thousands of email subscribers and he built it all from scratch. So you'll hear about how he built that audience from scratch, how he was able to write and produce content so prolifically day after day, and interestingly enough, the challenges with marketing a psychology practice. So. To start out, I love asking my guests, did you ever think that you'd be writing uh, about psychology and emotional health for a living? No, I didn't know I was going to be into psychology at all as a kid. And, and even, even in college, I didn't study any psychology whatsoever. Really? I had, when, I was, when I was a kid, I often thought about being a writer. I think probably just because I did well in English classes or something. But no, I was, I was like an English major in college and studied I don't know, philosophy and English and literally zero science classes <laughs> up and through. I avoided most of them in high school and took no, almost none of them in college. Oh. And it wasn't until after. So I, I never would have expected at least the psychology, mental health part of it by any means. Yeah. Well, that's okay. I mean, if you were a small kid and you were talking about psychology and m- mental health, I might've been a little bit afraid. So maybe it's weird. a good thing, right? <laughs> like most things, we don't really end up we don't end up being the things that we thought we'd be like an astronaut or I wanted to be in the military or I wanted to be a football star. None of those things happen, but I'm happy where I'm at. But just for the sake of, you know, people getting to know you and kind of giving a, uh, a basis point for us to start and we can go down a few different rabbit holes. Could you give like a brief timeline and uh, kind of overview of how you got to where you are today? Yeah, sure. So I, let's see, graduated from college when I was 21, 22. I taught middle school for a couple of years and I like history, English, that sort of stuff, and quickly realized that I was less interested in what I was teaching and more interested in like how my students were learning differently. Like I'd have two kids get the same score on a test, but get it in totally different ways and just be like, what is going on there? Like, how does that happen? So it kind of got me interested in, in psychology. And so I took some, you know, just took some like extension classes through a local university and got into it, decided to do a master's in it. And while I was there, got really into the research side of things as well. And then sort of thought through the, you know, being kind of a clinical psychologist and doing psychotherapy with people. And it really ticked the boxes of a career that was both kind of intellectually stimulating and creative, but also very practical and just like literally helping people in a very direct way. And so I went on to do my PhD and yeah, for the last six years or so, I have been working as a full-time psychotherapist. I specialize in anxiety and insomnia. So I help people work through issues around those two things. And I just recently, well, actually back up a little bit about four, three to four years ago, I started blogging kind of on the side, like early mornings, nights, stuff like that. Just sort of about 
you know, mental health, but psychology, productivity, you know, just anything I was interested in really. And that quickly just kind of took off both in terms of my own interest in it and in terms of other people's. And so more and more I've been doing a lot of that. And I recently um, left my job as a therapist and I'm kind of out of my own and I'm doing some consulting and hopefully more time to work on my writing and other projects. Well, congrats. That's amazing. You're actually uh, the second person I've talked to today who just in the last week sort of went full time on their, their own, you know, online venture, essentially, you know, going out, striking out on their own. So congrats, really exciting. And I'm just also curious. So to back up just a little, a little bit on the psychology part of it, how did you nail down that you wanted to focus on anxiety and insomnia? Those two topics, when I heard them at first, I was like, Oh, like that, those like the two most relevant things today, you know, but as you know, that, you know, six to 10 years ago when you were having to decide what you were going to specialize in. No, not at all. It's really wild. Like I don't, I through grad school, I had no idea that those were the things I would specialize in. They both came kind of randomly. When I got my first job out of school, My the, the guy who hired me asked if I would write a review for this. He was like an editor on, in a journal and wanted me to review this book for the journal. And it was a book on, it was like a clinician manual on some new, like a new treatment for insomnia. And I was like, I don't know anything about insomnia or how to treat it, but like, sure, I'll, I'll read it, I guess, and write a review. Mm-hmm. I read it loved it was just like totally blown away that there was this amazing framework and treatment for insomnia that was totally behavioral and psychological and had amazing results like in the research and and nobody knew about it. I thought this is absolutely bonkers. And so I just started learning more about it and God bless my early clients who were kind of my test dummies for, for this. Like I just started, you know, working with people who said they had trouble sleeping and getting really good results. And, and then I, you know, I started going to conferences and going to workshops and learning, just learning more and more about it. But it really just started with kind of this mixture of like happenstance, like kind of luck being asked to review this book. And then my own kind of curiosity is just thinking like, this is amazingly interesting and, and so helpful and nobody knows about it. And so that's how that little like specialty, for instance, kind of developed. (laughs) And then at some point you start blogging, you start writing, getting, putting uh, thoughts to paper and pen to paper and just getting things out there. What do you think that that muscle came from where, you know, you just had this urge to publish things online? Was it really just to kind of evangelize and help people and get the word out about different techniques and practices that can help? Or did you just need some sort of outlet? Like walk me through the decision to, uh, especially yeah. consistently start blogging. Cause I think everyone says, you know, created a personal site or they published one article somewhere, but even, you know, to keep with it is a, is a huge feat. Yeah. So it was really, it was frustration all the way down. So the the first, my first kind of foray was even before I started a blog, I decided to self-publish a book. I was getting, it doesn't take very long when you're a practicing psychologist to start hearing from everybody and their mom about very understandably, like I've got my, you know, nephew struggles with depression and I just can't find anyone good for him to see and work with. Or, you know, my spouse has got major anger issues, but they're like, they don't really know where to go. Like, how do you, what do you deal with that? And so I was constantly getting people asking me, like, how do you find a good therapist? We just Google therapist, like whatever your city is. And there's a million results. How do you know whether someone's Mm. good or it's a good fit? And so I was getting into these long conversations with people like, basically saying kind of the same thing, walking through all the nuance of different types of therapists and different types of issues and how insurance works, all this kind of stuff. 
And at some point I was just like, God, it would be a lot easier if I could just hands like point someone, go read this website or hand them like, here's this like binder full of information. Cause I keep saying the same things over and over again. And it's not rocket science. It's pretty straightforward, but it is complex. Like there's a lot of it. And so I literally just thought it would be nice if I could just hand someone a little book. that's like, here's all my thoughts on it. <laughs> read that and then get back to me afterwards if you have questions. And so I just started like writing down my thoughts on it. Like kind of was like, okay, different types of therapy. I just like kind of started brainstorming, like what are the big major types of therapy? And here's kind of how to think about each of them. And, and then over the course of a few months, like I basically had a book's worth of content and I kind of just learned about Amazon KDP and bumbled my way through formatting eBooks or whatever, and put that out there and then realized, you know, had that lived experience of what you hear people talking about all the time, which is like, if you're going to put something out there, like you should probably have an audience first or else no one, no one, but like your mother and your grandfather are going to be interested. (laughs) So I had a bunch of copies to like hand out, but it was crickets when I released it right aside from some wonderful friends and family. And so that kind of got me interested in the idea of, well, if I ever want to write a book again, which I could see doing, I should probably have some sort of a platform or audience or people who are interested in, in me and my work. So I just, yeah, I set up a blog and I, luckily I had heard the advice that like, if you're going to write, you should have a newsletter too, so that you can, you know, have a better way to kind of stay in touch with people. And so I started a blog and newsletter and I really just started writing about like anything and everything in vaguely in psychology and kind of personal growth that I found interesting. And, you know, in terms of like sustain, you asked about like, keep, how did I keep doing it? And I've done for the last, I've published a, you know, a newsletter every week for the last three and a half years and written about probably about two articles a week. And I really, at the end of the day, I think it's just because I'm so interested in this stuff. Like I just love it. I, mm. for a long time, it was what I talked about literally all day, every day. And so it was, it was very easy to translate ideas into words. And I'm just, I just, I'm curious about it. Like I would wake up early in the morning, like excited to write an article about, uh, I don't know, like where does confidence actually come from, you know, or something like that. And Mm. so I think that for me has been the real secret to the consistency is just being fortunate enough to, yeah, have a topic that I'm just really interested in and curious about and passionate for. And that kind of makes the writing fairly easy, (laughs) dare I say. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to have to pick your brain more about that, yeah. that writing bit because it's something that I've struggled with. I think a lot of other people struggle with and there's probably some tactical kind of practical pieces to that, but just to reverse for a second on to back to the therapy and how to find a therapist, it piqued my interest because there's sort of like a marketing lesson in there of like how mm. do people discover therapists to work with? And you literally wrote the book on how to find a therapist. So <laughs> like, can you just talk me through a little bit on how the whole kind of therapy industry works, how people find therapists? And also, I mean, just a couple of pointers on like how to find someone good to work with. Yeah. Oh, it's such a, it's so needlessly hard. <laughs> Part of it is that like <laughs> therapists are, they've got to be in the running for like the worst marketers. And I don't mean mm-hmm. marketing in like the, the kind of complicated way that you end up talking to actual marketers about. I just mean in like the really straightforward way of you've got a business and you want new clients and like you don't even have a website. Or you have a website that looks like it was built in 1997. You know, like, what are you doing? (laughs) And so I think, and I don't know why, honestly, I don't know why. I've stopped trying to like psychoanalyze other therapists and why they're so terrible at at marketing and and anything technology related. (laughs) And I I think it's starting to change, but yeah, it's it's hard. And, And 
the, but I think structurally, the really big thing that makes finding a therapist hard is because it is literally the only profession I can think of, any profession where you can't watch someone do their profession for confidentiality reasons. You, you can't like listen in or even and get an actual sense for, you know, is Dr. So-and-so actually good at doing therapy? Sure. They went to Harvard and they wrote X, Y, and Z books, but like maybe they're kind of an asshole in, in, maybe they're just like not a very agreeable person. And like, maybe they're kind of awkward and like overly intellectual and you can't like jibe with them or connect with them. And so they're not going to make a very good therapist, no matter how smart they are or like what degrees they got. So I think that is actually at the root of a lot of why it's really hard to find a good therapist is because there are no, there really aren't very many shortcuts. I mean, normally the way we get shortcuts with things like this is I trust, you know, I trust Corey as a pretty good judge of X, Y, and Z thing, you know, good books on marketing, right? And so when Corey can kind of like give me that shortcut to what's the most important book on marketing to read, because I trust your judgment, right? You can't, you can't even really do that in therapy because even like my colleagues who I've worked with for six plus years, I've literally never seen them do therapy. I've heard them talk about how they do therapy, right? But I've never seen them do it. So I can't even, it's really, it's just really hard to give a recommendation that's based on personal experience. So to get around to your answering your question, finally, the, the real answer to how do you find a good therapist is you have to be willing to go on test drives. <laughs> which is really annoying, but it is kind of like buying a car. Like you can do some research and that's what my book is about. Like thinking through, and I, I can talk about specifics of it, but like different types of therapy and, and which type makes sense given my issue, whatever I'm struggling with and you know, how much can I afford and do I need a psychiatrist versus a psychologist or, you know, whatever. But like at the end of the day, like all, you can have all that stuff, all the boxes checked there, but really it's kind of about the relationship. Like it has to be someone who, you, you know, you trust someone who makes you feel comfortable, also someone who will challenge you when you need to be and will actually help you grow, not just make you feel comfortable. And mm. there, there, unfortunately, there is really is no shortcut there. And so you have to be willing. And it's hard because it's, it's not like talking about like whether you want a gray car or a green car, right? It's like, I'm talking about this terrible traumatic incident that happened when I was five years old or whatever. Like, that's a hard thing to just talk to a complete stranger about. But yeah at the end of the day, like I've never found a real workaround to that. And so I, what I try and tell people is at least set their expectations of this. There are no shortcuts. You are going to have to just get on the phone, talk to some people, even if you don't meet with them in person, just hear how they talk about stuff. Say, Hey, I'm, I'm interested in working on this. Like, can you tell me a little bit about how you work and like what your practice is like? And you, you got to interview people basically just like when, again when you're going to you can do research on what kind of car you want but like you got to get in the car and actually see how does it feel like how big is it inside how you know and so I, I think really it's the same with finding a counselor or a therapist is part you can't just there's no guarantees like you're gonna have to experiment and go for some test drives yeah well it sounds like you're doing therapists around the world a huge service by teaching people how to go on test drives and find them and actually <laughs> have the courage to go and, and test, right? And get in contact with them. Right. Secondly, there's going to be a marketer, maybe one listening to this show, who's going to specialize in marketing for therapists. And they're going to have a, a super good 2021 updated website. They're going to encourage uh, therapists to, to give test drives and make it really, really easy to get in contact with them and make a killing and have great retainers for, for well-paid therapists. But it's a really fascinating look into, like I said, an industry that is 
largely kind of a black box and that you can't see. And I would, I would have to assume that a lot of what gets people through the door is also just kind of like word of mouth and referrals and recommendations of, oh, well, you know, if you have the same problems as me, then you might like my therapist. You should go talk to them. Because otherwise, how do you really discover a therapist? You, like I said, you have to, you know, Google or you have to, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know what else you have to post in a Facebook group. Like there really aren't that many means to discovering therapists in your area. No, not at all. And that's, that's usually how, I mean, if you're lucky, you're someone like your primary care provider might know someone, you know, a doctor or yeah, or a friend maybe who's willing to talk about the fact that they were in therapy and, and recommend someone. But even then, again, there, there's the problem of, you know, it's, it's really hard to actually know how good is someone on top of how good are they for you? Because that's a whole nother question. Like the fit is so, again, someone can be a great therapist, but it just might not be a good fit for your personality and the things you want to work on. And so, yeah, it's, it's tricky, but I think it's, there's an awesome like marketing project in there of how to help therapists help their clients find them in a way that's friendly and understandable and accessible. And because it's contrary to what people think therapy is much less like mysterious and esoteric than I think than people imagine. It's actually really, really straightforward in a lot of ways. It's not, it's, it's, Mm. it can be tough, but it's a very straightforward process. And we, my profession does the world a real disservice by kind of colluding to kind of keep it seeming mysterious and mm. like, again, very yeah esoteric and it's really not. And so like, I think like you alluded to, someone's going to crack that eventually and it's going to be, it's going to be good for everybody. I, I really believe. Yeah. It'll be a win-win. So having read the, or having written the book and being a practicing therapist yourself, how did you get clients? Like what were the means for, for you to, you know, create those lasting relationships and, and clients that were, you know, would come back time and again, you could, you could, you could, you could actually build a relationship with. Yeah. So the, the first thing is, is just, I, so I worked in a small group practice that was already pretty established and, and I, the type of therapy I did, the broad term is cognitive behavioral therapy. It's a specific kind of approach to, to doing therapy. And, and we were really one of the only places in town that, that specialized in that kind of therapy. So we, we had, I mean, we always had a wait list. We just had more people than we knew what to do with. So I oh, think wow. plugging in there really helped, but pretty quickly I became known as the, like the sleep guy. And even, even sort of within Albuquerque, the, the city where I live, there, there weren't too many, I couldn't think of anyone else who really put like planted the flag and said, like, I specialize specifically in cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia which by the way is the most like research supported approach to, to insomnia, but whatever, I was just the only one who was doing it. And so yeah, word like word gets around. So that from like the purely kind of clinical standpoint, that, that those were some of the things that helped. But then as I started writing and blogging more, I, I would just get, you know, I still get tons of emails from people saying, Hey, I, like, can I work with you? Are you seeing people remotely? What? And I, I, I can't for reasons of, you know, you can't see, you can only see people in the state where you're licensed and it's, it's complicated, oh, but interesting, but it really is. If I, <laughs> I was in the position where I actually needed more clients, but it's crazy how powerful even just sort of basic blogging would be because it, not only does it demonstrate kind of your expertise and your interests and, and kind of get the word out, but I think it does that thing that's so hard with therapy and, and mental health is it gives people a window into your personality. It, sh- it doesn't just show people like your expertise, but if you're a 
conscientious writer, the way you write is going to reflect like your personality and what, and what you're, what you're like. And so I think a, a lot of people would email me saying, I just, you know, I've, I've, I've been seeing a therapist for 10 years or I've read so many books or whatever. And I just love the way you write about X, right? The way you write about self-esteem, the way you write about anxiety. Like I, it's just so refreshing. And, and that's what you want. I think is that again, it's not that my way is better than other people's approaches, but there's, you know, there's a ton of supply. There's all these, you know, sort of experts out there with different approaches. And then there's a ton of demand, right? There's all these people out there with different needs and it's, it's, it's just a matching problem. And when you put yourself Mm -hmm. out there blogging, you let people kind of match themselves up with you, um, in a way that creates a good, a good fit. So yeah, I don't, that's, if I was, uh, yeah, if I was uh, consulting for other therapists who wanted to get more clients, I, that would be a pretty killer way to do it. I think. There we go. Yeah, I think we actually just found your next business. Maybe it's just marketing for I marketing know. for therapists. <laughs> and no, but it's, it, I think it's a great case study on just allowing people to feel like they know you, right, and like showcasing personality, yeah. but also niching down. It's interesting you said that, you know there was always a wait list and you're sort of, you know, the sleep guy, and there's always the trope of you know the riches are in the niches and. Um, you know, going smaller, it can actually be going bigger, but it's really true in that maybe for therapists, especially where, you know, if you're kind of a jack of all trades, master of none, then sure you might have a good clientele. You probably have a very diverse kind of set of problems, but if you really want it to be in demand and also build expertise, then you really want to focus in on one to two things. Yeah. It's interesting though. I, this, I'm fascinated by this topic, the sort of niche versus broad. And more and more, I'm wondering whether that's a little bit of a false dichotomy because mm. in, my, in my situation, one way to look at it is if I had been forced to decide, you know, year one of grad school, okay, you need to pick, you know, you need to niche down and like pick something right now. Like, who knows what I would have, something stupid, probably something that didn't like fit me very well. I would have just had to pick because so-and-so said I needed to, or just, but the fact that I was able to be general and to kind of just follow my curiosities for a while without having to specialize, that allowed me to niche down well, which I think in, in some ways is more important. I mean, that's more important than just like niching down for a niche's sake is, I I don't know that that's a very sustainable or effective strategy. Mm -hmm. So there's this, I think there's this weird bi-directional relationship between general interest and niche and specialty. And I think that, yeah, I just think that relationship is more complicated than maybe we, than people often, because I've heard that same thing, you know, the riches are in the niches and you got to niche down and become known for something. And, but I think it's more complicated than that. And I, I don't certainly don't have all the answers, but I think it's worth thinking more in a more nuanced way. But I don't know, what do, you, what do you think about that, Corey? Right, yeah, and I don't think it's as black and white as you, as most people make it out to be. And I was even thinking while I was saying that, I was wondering, well, actually, does Nick still write you know, exclusively about insomnia and anxiety? And from what I can see, that's not at all the case. And so even when you, even when you do find uh, a niche that's like really, really great, profitable, in demand, then you, you can still sort of branch out from that niche. It's maybe not, uh, an and or, but maybe it's sort of uh, an advantage or a starting point, an entry point for someone to discover you, find you, or engage with you in some way, rather than you know an, an and or, right, where the two ideas are mutually exclusive. Yeah, you know, and that that reminds me when I first started writing the book, I I kind of thought like, well, I'll do a little. I, I forget even where I did this, but I I blogged like a little bit about like how to find a therapist. And I struggled so hard to write and to be consistent with it because like, I just wasn't that interested in it personally. 
It, to me, that was like a product. Like this book needed to be out in the world and I was just going to write it and get it out there. But like, it wasn't something I like woke up excited to like write new stuff about every single day. The only thing that allowed me to, I think, to get really get started and stay consistent with my writing online was I, because I was free to write about whatever happened to pique my interest within some pretty broad parameters, I, I always had motivation. Like I was always excited to write it. It was never, it was never a have to, it was always a want to. And so mm. people ask like, how, you know, how do you avoid procrastination? How do you stay motivated? How do you, and like, honestly, it, it's because I wrote about stuff I was really interested in. Like the motive, the motivation's not in me, the motivation's in the topic in the fit between me and the topic. So I think that's another, that would be a, you know, a check in the, the, if you're comparing sort of niching down versus staying generalist, one of the things a sort of a generalist has going for them is you can more easily maintain motivation to keep going and stay consistent because it allows you more opportunity to follow your, your genuine sort of curiosities and interests. Mm, right. Yeah. We, we were talking in another kind of group conversation about, about this topic of kind of keeping your motivation and writing and being prolific and, and positioning, especially. Mm. And, uh, I had mentioned how, you know, I had shared some frustrations around being maybe like, I, I didn't want the kind of specialty that I had, which was being like the B2B SaaS marketing guy. Like mm. I, I will gladly accept that. And that's definitely like my area of expertise. And I love that area, but I don't, I don't only want to be the B2B SaaS marketing guy. I want to be more than that. I want to be I don't know, just the marketing guy, <laughs> you know, marketing is maybe like the, the, the broader kind of niche that I can, that I accept, but the B2B SaaS marketing is a little bit too niche for, you know, I feel a little bit exhausted and, you know, you, you can only go so far within those bounds before you start to run out of ideas and run out of curiosity there. Yeah. And, and, and sort of, and you can niche on different things besides just topic, right? Like you can niche on on personality and approach, right? Like you're like when I listen to everything is marketing, like it, you you are one of the few marketing people I follow who I feel like is very thoughtful. Is like the word that comes to mind about how you think about it and how you approach it and the kinds of questions you ask your guests and all that kind of stuff. And that's that's kind of unique to at least in my experience in the in the marketing world. Or who's who's the guy that everyone hates marketers guy louis something like he's yeah, just louis sort Graham. of like yeah he like cusses and he's sort of like irreverent and like so he's like the <laughs> like the irreverent will just like say anything like marketing guy and like that appeals to so that's the other thing about the the niching kind of thing is like you can you can niche on a lot of different pivot points right it doesn't mm. i think it doesn't just have to be like content area. And so that I'm personally, I'm sort of on a journey to, to think more in a more nuanced way about yes, like having a niche to some degree is important, but there's a lot of ways I think you can do that. Right. It doesn't have to just be niching on content or on topic or on category, but it, it can also be on style and personality mm -hmm. and delivery, even medium, you know, where you sort of deliver that content or where you deliver the content that you're that you're writing about. That's really, the, I think there is a lot of nuance there. And so in, in your couple of years now writing through this, has there ever been a point where you thought, okay, maybe I need to, you know, cause you're, you're probably looking at the analytics of, okay, which articles are, are the best performing, which were the, are the least performing. You're have this, you know, prolific schedule of producing around two articles a week, obviously having a, a big kind of category and not niching down too much helps in being able to be so prolific because there's is an endless amount of things to do. 
but how do you kind of guide what you're doing and what you're writing about and choose what to keep doubling down on versus maybe areas to avoid that maybe just aren't hitting the same way? Yeah. So in terms of what to write about, it's still like 90% just my own kind of interest and curiosity, which is sometimes peaked by like, I'll have a newsletter. One of my, you know, readers from my newsletter say, you know, this was interesting in this article. Like, could you talk about this? And I Mm. frankly, like, I'm not going to like, they, they want to know like how, you know, how can I be more confident in my, in new romantic relationships or something like that. Right. And I will not be super interested in that specific question, but it will, it will like pique my curiosity in like, that made me think of why do some people like start off confident and then lose confidence once they get into relationships and then not, and then become confident when they're not in relationships again. Like what, what's the deal with that? And then I'll just chase that because that's what I'm interested in. And frankly, like, that's what I have motivation to do. <laughs> so in, you're like, thanks it, for the re- idea, but I'm not going to answer your question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> or I'll do it kind of obliquely. And so in terms of the what, like I'm honestly just pretty selfish about like, it, it really is just my own what kind of lights me up um, and gets me interested in. That being said, and, and but then in terms of the, the how, like in terms of how I, yeah, just how I write and the way I communicate and, and to some extent, my kind of marketing, if you want to call it that, is I think I started with some, I started with my personality, but I've really learned from, from a couple of other writers how to capitalize on that. And what I mean is if you ask people now, like what they like about my writing, the, the adjectives you'll hear a lot are like straightforward and practical, friendly, like simple, but still substantive. So I, I I'm a pretty friendly guy um, by nature. And I think what I learned when I first started writing, I was writing these big, epic, information-dense, like, how-to guides that were just, like, super, like, tactical. Like, here, you know, here's what this is. And, and, and probably a little too academic as well. But I, yeah, I just learned from a bunch of other... Early on when I started writing, I, I got invited to join this writer's group, which was one of the best things that ever happened to me as a writer because I, in part, because I got to learn from other writers. And so I there were a couple of the writers that I found who I just really loved their, they had a very conversational, like approachable kind of friendly style to them. And I, frankly, I just started kind of imitating it. I I think I had a little bit of that in my writing, but I seeing them and seeing them do well, it sort of gave me permission to say, you know what, maybe I can table some of that tactical stuff and like open up this sort of friendlier, more conversational, style. And when I did that, two like kind of epic things happened, which I was not prepared for, which is that one, writing got way easier and more fun. Like I mm. I literally when I write now, it just feels like I'm having a conversation. Like I literally write like I speak. I'm just like having a dialogue in my head and sort of yeah, it's it's like talking. So it's and I I like talking, obviously. <laughs> so it became way easier. <laughs> and then it turns out like people just related with it way more. Like my articles got a lot more popular and they got shared more and all this kind of stuff. And so I really think it it was a matter of how I started writing more than than what the topics I choose to write. I mean, there are always some topics that do like whenever I write about confidence, it always like go, people like confidence, I guess, apparently. Mm. But I think it's much more about how how I write than the particular because I mean there's a million and one articles on confidence in the internet you know and so I think it's yeah it's it's much more about the how than the what for me right right yeah it's an interesting thought because 
when there is a lot of supply, especially content and, you know, articles, right? There's just an enormous, especially when you're covering an in-demand topic, like something like confidence or insomnia or anxiety, for example, I would have to imagine that there's literally already tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of pages and articles who have already covered it. So it's not really like a information gap where you're like, oh, someone needs to write about this. Like I'll be the one. It's more about, um, personality and it's more about the way that you deliver it and how you write it that then becomes the differentiator and people say oh next time i you know i'm going to go see what nick has to say about this or if they see your article they know that there's a certain kind of brand or representation or reputation you have that you can deliver on based on what they've read from you before yeah a hundred percent it makes me think of my like when i i think about this with podcasts a lot actually because i i actually i listen to more podcasts than than read articles online by other people. Hmm. And what, one of my favorite podcasts is, is called Conversations with Tyler. And it's by a guy, an economist named Tyler Cowan. Who's, he's a blogger too. And he's, he's pretty well known in certain circles. But I have zero interest in economics per se. I didn't study economics at all. And he has a lot. Of, I mean, he has a wide variety of guests on. But a lot of them are, are economists. And they talk about like weird economic theories. And But like I love that show because I am so fascinated by the way he thinks. He's like just the mm. watching his mind work and like the kind of kinds of questions he asks. And like, it is just utterly fascinating and kind of inspiring to me. And so I don't care who he has on his podcast. I am like dying to listen to his shows because I just think he's so interesting. Like the way he thinks and the way he, he has conversations is just fascinating to me. So it's, mm. it really is like less about the, the content is like a delivery mechanism for the way of thinking. And so I think that, and I think in, in my own way, I think I tap into that a little bit. I think people like how I talk about and think about things. I think that's much more important than, than what I talk about. But yeah, hundred percent. I don't know if you've thought of this, maybe it's just me, but a lot of times I'll, you know, take out the chips and the salsa or the chips and the guacamole. I'm in San Diego and my wife's Mexican. So I love spicy, hot food. Yeah. And sometimes I'll take out the chips and the salsa and then I just have like this existential thought where I think, you know what, really, I'm just here for the salsa or the guacamole. Like <laughs> the chip isn't really what I'm here for. It's just a delivery mechanism for this other food that I want to eat. And maybe it's the same thing for personalities and for content. Like if I'm reading Nick's article, it's really just a way for me to get inside the mind of Nick and to hear from Nick and to read Nick's thoughts. Not really so much about the content. Although of course, that has to be innately interesting. But sometimes if you're someone like Tyler or maybe someone like yourself, even if it's something vastly outside of your circle of interest or competence, it's still interesting because of that person. Absolutely. Um, I love that metaphor so much. <laughs> Another like layer on this to, to kind of bring it around to, to marketing a little bit more formally, though, is something I've started thinking a lot more about is, you know, people talk about um, marketing funnels or like sales funnels or... I, in, in my, the way I think about my content is I've more and more, I'm starting to think about education funnels, which is, mm. I, I, so I think the way I write, it's not that the content doesn't matter, but for most of what I produce, what gets people in the door is the how much more than the what. I mean, you need a little bit of, someone has to be vaguely interested in, in confidence or in anxiety or whatever it is, right? But what's going what's gonna to get them into the door, into your world to create at least kind of a, a vague fan I think is more the, the how, right? And then I think as you bring people along that, ed so that's like the, you know, if I just write some article on, uh, you know, and post it on my website and then on Medium and it, it's, it's about, you know, 
five habits of competent people or something, I don't know, something straightforward like that. The, the way I write is going to bring people into my orbit, right? Then if I want to go deeper and like really get into, okay, if you want to start becoming more confident and I will teach you that in my book or in a course or something like that, then you can get more heavy on kind of the, the substance of content. But I think it's so, it's naive to think that you can just dump a ton of information on people and then all of a sudden they're, they're going to like buy it. That, that's like, so, you know, a, a freshman in college shows up and wants to study history and like you just throw them into some like obscure 17th century history of Russian literature. So, like, no, mm, you start with right. like the broad survey course which yeah. an underappreciated function of that is it gets people excited. It gets people interested. It gets them curious, mm. right? And then you can progressively deliver on more of the kind of content stuff. So when, when I think about this, this tension between the how and the what, a lot of it is just, you call it good marketing. It's also just good education, right? Like you're, you need, a lot of times you need inspiration before you can give information. 100%. One of the things that, that came to mind as well as sort of the, the, the month's model of give people what they want and then you can give them what they need afterwards. It's like, first you have to give them what they, what they want. People are saying, I need a how to, or like, I just need like this like quick fix. And then, but you know, behind the scenes of what they really need is this thing over here. It's this technique or it's this, you know, really dense piece of information. It's this, this other thing you can package up, but they're never going to get to what they need if you don't give them what they want first. Exactly. I have a writer friend who says, you got to put a little cheese on the broccoli. (laughs) (laughs) Going with food metaphors for marketing. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, I love it. Yeah. We have chips and salsa. Now we have uh, cheese and broccoli. Yep. One of the other things I've been thinking about is, I don't know if this is just like the privilege of building an audience, but a lot of people might say, for example, if they're just starting out, you know, I can't just write about anything and everything because I'm not, you know, who knows if it'll actually work or if that'll land with people and, you know, sort of like this survivorship bias of like, well, it worked for me. And so, you know, it might work for you. Do you think that this is something that's more broadly applicable or maybe something that's more specific for you that you get to be able to kind of talk about anything and everything? You don't have to do keyword research for SEO. You don't have to like strategically plan and, and really write out and orchestrate this whole content calendar. You're just kind of going day by day by the, by the, the seat of your pants. Yeah. So first of all, long-term, I'm not sure that's a great strategy. I, I probably do need to be more <laughs> strategic about my uh, content and marketing plan. But I, I think it's a really good question. This is one of those questions I'm asking myself all the time when I'm listening to podcasts like this is like, mm. exactly. Survivorship bias. Like, yeah, that's great. That works for you. But like, there's a million and one variables that could have, that you're not even talking about that could have gone into that. And I, I don't know. Honestly, like, yes, there, there could be a bunch of like unknown factors that may, well, for instance, like, why am I able to write fairly effortlessly in a way that's pretty compelling to people about mental health and psychology and personal growth. Well, I don't, probably like spending six plus years in grad school and then another six years doing psychotherapy on these issues, like day in and day out, like that's probably going to increase your fluency, like for being able to talk about this kind of stuff. Right. So yeah. it, is that a kind of privilege? Like, yeah, being able to write about something you do and have studied already in some capacity, again, makes it a lot more fluent, right? So figure, but, but even there, I think just because you want to, you know, write about personal growth doesn't mean you have to have been, you know, a coach or a, or a therapist or a psychologist or something, right? We all grow or try to grow in different ways. And so there's ways I think to tap into that. 
The, the biggest thing though, I, I would say with this, my kind of theory on why it's hard for people starting off to really write consistently about something that they're really passionate about is I think it's very, people are really good at deceiving themselves about what they're actually passionate about. I know there's this whole like, you know, is passion a good thing or should we forget about passion? And like putting that whole thing aside, I think there are so many subtle but powerful cultural pressures to like certain things and not like other things. And I, so here's where the privilege really comes in. I feel like growing up, I was, I had a lot of people in my life who really went out of their way to make it okay for me to be interested in whatever it is I was interested in. I had, like, I was so, I, like my parents, for instance, were very, they were, they were always very encouraging and had high standards for school and sports and all that kind of stuff. But they, there was never like a whiff of, you know, like I was a lawyer, so you're going to be a lawyer too. Or like this kind of stuff is important and like this kind of stuff isn't important. And like, no, like whatever I was interested in, cool. So I think what that means is it takes a lot of courage and self-awareness to re and I mean really ask yourself now what do I really enjoy not even what am I passionate about but just like what matters to me like what do I have fun thinking about and talking about and doing right and that I think that is a surprisingly hard question for a lot of people to ask themselves honestly because there are so many pressures on them to give certain answers and to and to like these things are good things to be, you know, passionate about. And these things are like, no, nah, that's, that's not very good. So I think it's a, it's a real process for some people to like kind of peel away the onion, like all those layers of like inherited interests that like you inherit from culture or family or friend groups or whatever, and really ask yourself, no matter how weird it seems like, no, what am I just kind of like nerdy about? Like, what do I just like? Cause I like it. And that, I think you have to be willing to do that hard kind of inner work, unless it's very obvious to you. I think for a, a lot of people, that's, that's a journey. And I, I don't know exactly how to do that. I think that's a daunting thing, but yeah, I think it's, I think people deceive themselves a lot or, or are end up deceived. I don't think they do it to themselves. I think culture does it to them and resisting that and really discovering those, those not even, again, not even passion. It's just like interests. It, it can be, it can be hard work, but I, but I think, I, th I just think it's so key. Yeah. I, I don't know if passion is the right word. Like I said, maybe it's interests or curiosities or things that get you excited or just, you know, what feels like play to you or and work to yeah. others, all sorts of different ways you can kind of frame it. But I agree that there's a lot of, there's a lot of people that kind of poo poo on like the follow your passion kind of stuff. And I used to be one of those people as well. It was just like, I don't know, find something practical and like, we can't all do what we love. Like we have to make money. And that's true to a certain degree. I think probably everything is on a spectrum, but when you do do something that's within, that's like really innately interesting to you and you're curious about and it's exciting and that's fun. You have a huge advantage over everyone else because, well, maybe that, that kind of phrase is really apt, but what feels like play to you feels like work to others. And so you can do it a lot longer than other people and it just comes a lot easier and maybe even see things that other people don't see. And so when, when you do quote, follow your passion, that can lead you to places that make you more successful long-term than, than otherwise. Yeah. And I, I would just add too, I think it's a constant struggle. Like I, as I have built up an audience and, and had the opportunity to do more and more things, I'm constantly getting pulled to do things that are 
outside of my kind of what I'm really interested in and kind of light me up. And some of that's inevitable, of course, right? But some like, like I'm a writer, like I just love writing, like, and I like talking, I like, <laughs> like kind of teaching and, and doing <laughs> stuff like this. But like, do I like making YouTube videos? I don't know. Like I, I get that it's like a great platform and everybody's talking about how important it is. And like, yes, I, maybe I should probably experiment with that, but it does take a kind of courage to say like, no, you know what? This person is blowing up on YouTube and they're having amazing success and like right on good, like good for you. Like I'm genuinely like glad, but pr- maybe not my thing. And maybe like staying kind of focused on not, it's not even staying in your lane. It's like staying, it's like staying selfish. Like what are the things that you are actually sort of interested in and that kind of light you up and not falling victim to that? Well, this thing is lighting that person up. So maybe I can get lit up by, by doing that too. And like, that's a date. It's just a dangerous game. Again, you got to do it a little bit, I think, but you got to be like constantly vigilant of that. At least I, I oh. think I need to be. <laughs> 100%. Yeah, it, definitely. I think it's too easy for marketers as well. As, you know, we look at what other people are doing and if it's working, there is mm. a certain sort of jealousy and or just like a wondering like, well, well, should I be doing that too? And what am I missing out on? There's FOMO and, you know, maybe that thing over there is better than what I'm doing. And, and you don't even think about what do I enjoy or what am I mm. uniquely qualified to do? Or, you know, what's the right platform for me and for my audience who are just thinking about what's working for them over there, even if it's not a good fit for you or your audience. But I I do want to, so there's kind of like this big elephant in the room, which is that you have successfully built an audience and we get to talk about all this stuff because you've been in the trenches and now you have some of the battle scars and, and things to talk about, right? You've, you've been there and done that. Could you share, well, one, how you built your audience? We've briefly touched on, okay, we started blogging heard medium thrown out you know, a few times so like how have you built your audience that allows you to now make a living online and just any sort of i don't know numbers or scale view you can share yeah. just so people have an idea of like where you are today yeah so i had i had no following online really to speak of when i started and I, so I, I just put up a wordpress blog and i had a email newsletter and i i sent out an email to i don't know maybe like 50 friends and family and I, my first newsletter probably went out to like 30 or 40 people. And again, friends of family. <laughs> and that, it, that was probably the case for the first three or four months. I, like, I literally don't think it, it wasn't above like probably 70, 60 people for like three months. Like it just really, but I do remember finally, like after every single weekly newsletter, my grandfather would always email me back saying, great article. Like this was really good. You know, you just always have like something nice to say. And that oh, it that. sounds stupid, but like that made so much of a difference to me. I knew it was kind of like corny and yes, he's doing this just to be nice. And like, I mean, I think he did like him, but it's a very grandfatherly thing to do, but like, God damn it. Like that actually helped. <laughs> like despite my like cynicism, like having someone, just one person like that, it was really helpful. So I, yeah, I wouldn't skip that step again, like kind of recruiting friends and family initially. The next thing, the next like bump that really, and, and I was at that point, by the way, I was getting like zero traffic to my blog. I mean, I had no other, and I wasn't on any social media really. I was literally just putting stuff out there like into the void. Didn't know anything about just SEO. Just press and publish. Just press and yeah. publish. Yep. And sharing it with this really small group of people. My first kind of big break came when I, I just, I'd known about Medium, but I decided I, I, I heard that it's like pretty easy. You can just cross post stuff. So I already had these articles written on my blog. So I thought, yeah, what the hell? I'll just like put this on Medium. And so I, I put this article on Medium and 
within like a day, someone from an editor from one of the bigger publications there called the startup said, Hey, like I saw this piece somehow. I don't know how I saw it. Can we publish it in, in the startup? And I, I said, yeah, sure. I guess <laughs> why not? And then it, it kind of, it had a little mini blow up. It seemed like out of this world to me, like at my stage, you got like, you know, like, I don't know, 10,000 views or something like, mm. and, and that got me probably, I don't know, like, I mean, it bumped my, my medium follower count, but I also had a CTA at the bottom of the, of the article. So that kind of doubled my email list probably and all sort of new people. And that obviously like that was super exciting. And so I was like, all right, this medium thing, this is great. I'm just repurposing. I'm just literally copying, pasting my, this article I've written already and putting on a medium. Mm. So that kind of progressed fairly well for about a year or so. And at that time, I also started learning just like the real basics of SEO. I, like I got like the Yoast plugin and I wasn't even doing keyword research at that point. I was just kind of like following the Yoast thing. And, and right. over the course of about a year, I started getting fairly good, some, some pretty good SEO traffic. And then about, at about the year point, this is when I, I, I was talking before about, I started kind of actively like trying to learn from a few of these writers I I admired on Medium and developing this more conversational style. And that's where my <clears throat> my Medium growth like really took off. I mean, I went from like a few hundred subscribers up to thousands, you know, eight, nine, 10,000. And then at the same time that I was starting to build up like SEO kind of organic traffic to my website. And common misconception with Medium, you can actually set the canonical link to be like your WordPress version so that if an article like blows up on medium, all the SEO juice still goes to your website. So I was having these pieces blow up on medium, but then I'd rank for them for the, my sites version. So I'd get all this more organic traffic coming to my website. And yeah, so that, so my email list was just growing. I think after the first uh, year, year and a half, I was at, you know, a few thousand subscribers and then Last year, I just really kind of hit my stride with Medium and I figured out like the right format, kind of like the right tone and format for writing on Medium and, and the SEO had really started kicking in. I was getting a lot of traffic there and my, yeah, my newsletter went up to, you know, pretty quickly got up to like 15, 20,000 and that's kind of where I am today. So, but it's almost entirely been Medium and SEO and that's, that's where I get probably 80%, 90% maybe of my newsletter subscribers, which is my primary kind of metric that I hmm. track is that I just include links, um, CTAs at the bottom of all my medium articles. And then I, you know, I, again, I don't, I don't do tons of keyword research. Honestly, again, I'm too selfish. Like I just write about whatever I'm interested in and I'll do a little like kind of minimal, you know, SEO stuff, but yeah, that's worked really well so far. Although, although to be honest, I've been kind of winging it so far, but I've realized if I, if I do want to kind of get to the next level, I, I do need to be more, thoughtful, I think about strategy and some of the more formal aspects mm. of the approach. But I, I think the big thing was just like medium was just my home. Like it's like a writer's platform and I was a writer. I just liked writing and it was easy. It was simple. I could just plug stuff over there and I was, I liked the people I was reading on there. And I, so that allowed me to kind of learn from them and, and create a, a voice and a style that worked well for that audience and for the people on that platform. Yeah. And so I think that, I think that just, I think that really helped a lot. Yeah. Oh yeah. I've been kind of toying and workshopping this idea of owned, rented and borrowed platforms mm. and just like helping people like really like break it down fundamentally. Like what, what is marketing? What does it mean? Like how do you sort of strategically engineer something that just, you know, gets you traffic, gets attention to whatever thing it is that you do, whether it's content or a product or a service 
and in you you know even between owned, rented, and borrowed, you basically just need you need one platform that's like or at least one that gets you discovered and like gets kind of those initial eyeballs and new people through the door. And then you need another one that kind of keeps people around retention that, you know, loops them in somehow. And so, you know, very clearly for you, right. Medium was that discovery mechanism, that discovery platform. People come through the door, you get the traffic and then Google tacked on as, you know, maybe like a number two, and then you're funneling everyone to the newsletter and now they're subscribed. And I have another way to, keep in touch with them and keep, you know, getting returning, returning traffic from each of your visitors and subscribers. Yeah, absolutely. And it's the, the newsletter was just so was and is so key. I mean, even, even just from an SEO point, like it's pretty awesome after you publish a, you know, an article now I can just link to it in my newsletter and all you out of nowhere, you get 1500 visits or something like that's pretty, that starts to help a lot. But, but yeah, it starts with that idea of having your own, it was tiny. It was like 30 people at the beginning. Right. But this newsletter of people who just, yeah, get to know me and my style and like, and they just have that one, they just need to open that one email every Monday morning. They don't need to go to my website or anything. And they mm-hmm. just kind of stay in touch and it just becomes a part of their life. And they were just, like, I so frequently have people say like, Oh, I just, I look forward to Monday morning so much. Cause I know like your, your newsletter comes out and it's, there's always something kind of interesting in there. And so, yeah, I, lo- I love that, but I love that framework of kind of own rented and borrowed. And that has definitely been the, you know, sort of renting or borrowing medium and, and, and SEO, and then owning the, the, the list. And I know it's cliche. People talk about it all the time, but it, it really is. It's been awesome for me. Yeah. I mean, the newsletter is probably your most your most powerful, valuable asset, but you wouldn't have gotten there without the kind of arbitrage opportunity with medium. And you've been with medium through some of the highs and lows and changes and all the things in between. Is there anything special you were doing on medium that allowed you to, you know, get good success there? And I believe, I mean, you're one of the, the top writers or, you know, there's some sort of accolade there with medium, but is anything you're doing differently than other writers or is it just the consistency and sort of this like brand and reputation that you've built up over time? Yeah. So I, again, this is always a little fraught cause there's the, well, maybe that just worked for you survivor fishership thing. But some of the things that I would point out in that I think have worked for me and that I've observed like common out common factors that I've observed also working for other people I know who have been successful on the platform is it kind of goes back to the first point is going back to this idea of inspiration over information. I see so many high quality articles on Medium that just totally bomb. Like they're full of really good information and I'm sure they took, you know, a lot of time and effort went into them, but they're just they're boring and they're like kind of stodgy and they're they're like hard work to read through. And mm-hmm. for whatever reason, I think Medium just really rewards writing that makes it easy on the reader. So like a few like particulars of that being really specific and straightforward in titles, like headlines of articles, like, and it, it sounds, <laughs> I have a little bit of like imposter syndrome over this, but like I almost always form my, my titles the exact same way. They're just, they're straight listicles. They're really straightforward. It's like, mm. you know, five habits that will make you more confident or something like that almost kind of generic sounding and definitely listically. But the, the, the magic there, I think, at least for medium is that they're so straightforward. Like, you know, exactly what you're going to get. It takes all the right. risk out of clicking into that article and starting re- to, to read because it's just, it's so transparent. Like it's just very straightforward. And so not being, it, it's been a real struggle for me is because I, I'm, I, 
always have this tug to be like, my stuff should sound more intellectual and it should be more like subtle and nuanced. And like, I'm just writing, you know, listicles all the time and which have kind of a bad reputation. But, but again, it goes back to like, you know, like fundamentally, like I'm a teacher, right? And if I'm even the most like, you know, I don't know, Nobel prize winning professors or whatever, they, they, they still end up teaching like one-on-one level classes. Right. And, they, and when you do that, like you have to be approachable, you know, you can't just like ram theories and complex stuff down, but you have to like guide people along the process. So I, yeah, I think being very straightforward and plain in the way you kind of position your articles is, is really important on medium. And then also just the way you structure them. Like medium has gone out of its way to give like tools and formatting that make writing like very beautiful and easy to read. And it's amazing how many people not only don't take advantage of that, but like actively interfere with it. They still write these like enormous <laughs> paragraph blocks of text. And yeah, anyway, it's just like, like making it easy, making, you know, having like very clear like sections being really obvious about like what you're talking about using, using tons of examples. This is like really like, I, I think people comment on this all the time with my writing. They'll say like, I feel like I would, like you were in my head because you were describing these situations that are like just like my life. And so whenever I make up like often when I make points, I go even though it's it's probably it feels excessive or gratuitous, I'll give like two or three examples kind of like and really simple like just a sentence or two explaining some idea using lots of metaphors and just being very again being very I think medium really rewards approachable straightforward writing. And so I, I think that's a lot of what's, yeah, what's helped and really resonated with people on Medium. Not like no jargon, like a lot of, I mean, a lot of this is pretty straightforward writing advice, but, but I think there are, again, there are like subtle reasons why this is hard. Like for me personally, it's that like, I'm not sounding intellectual enough. I'm not like sophisticated mm-hmm. enough in my writing. And it's constantly tempting me to use like big terms or to, you know, to write these headlines that are like, instead of. My normal style would be, again, like, you know, five habits that will help you be more confident. I want to write something like, you know, confidence as courage, blah, 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 you know, like, and that <laughs> stuff just does not, right. it, it sounds fancy and intellectual, right? And you can imagine someone going, ooh, wow, that sounds, you know, what, but like the vast majority of people are going to skim right over it because they're like, what the hell does that mean? I don't have time for this, Right. So anyway, that's, sorry, that's kind of a brain dump, but I think medium is such a missed opportunity by a lot of people. And it's, it's, yeah, a lot of it is pretty low hanging fruit actually. Hmm. Well, again, people like to poo poo on uh, follow your passion, but like there's some, some truth in there and everything's on a spectrum. And I think the same uh, applies to listicles and that sort of predictable, literal uh, expression of content and, and what you're writing about, what you're teaching. It's just like, look, this is what people want to consume like just give the people what they want right like they want five ways to you know to improve their confidence or whatever it is like give them five ways and like that let that be the title right it's just like this is exactly what people want and i think it especially comes down to the medium and how people discover the content as well because maybe for something like google you know you you kind of like uh is on the fence a little bit kind of dips their toes in two different pools where um you know you have to match the keyword so you're giving people what they want, right? And you can kind of get a little bit creative with it, right? But it's not going to give, deviate too much. But even then, like Google tends to really um, makes things very simplified because, you, you know, the broadest search terms and the most vague search terms 
are the the most searched because they are by definition the broadest, the biggest, like they have the most, you know, things can apply to them. Whereas something like Medium, some people aren't really searching through Medium as much as I understand or the way that I use mm -hmm. it. They're more browsing, right? You're kind of like coming across it or maybe it's sent to you through a newsletter. You're just kind of, you know, scrolling through different things. So it's really about how can I capture someone's attention who's scrolling through, not how can I fulfill, you know, the information how can I satisfy the information need of a Google search, right? Of like this really comprehensive in-depth thing. It's just, how can I get someone to click on this, right? And how can I get someone to read the next sentence, the next sentence, the next sentence? Exactly. And I think, yeah, when people are searching Google, they're, they're more primed for information. Like they're learning for, they're more at the like, I want to solve this problem stage. But with Medium, you, you like, you can't live in denial about this. Like most people, I think most people fundamentally, at least people on Medium, they want to be inspired more than they want information. They want to feel something much more than they want to learn something. Maybe eventually they want to learn something, right? And I'm, I want to position myself to be able to help them with that. But initially, right, you just want to make them feel something. They want to feel inspired. They want to see the world in a slightly new way, right? And so mm. if, a, if a listicle title and structure of an article gets people in, then you can do this, what I think is like a pretty cool sort of magic trick where people go in thinking it's going to be a, like your generic kind of fluffy listicle that doesn't deliver on the like sky high expectations of the title. But then you go in and it's this like really um, thoughtful, substantive, kind of friendly, just a really good article in there. And I think I, I hear this all the time. People are like, oh my God, I, I, I rolled my eyes when I saw your title and I, I almost didn't click in, but I did because I was just kind of intrigued <laughs> and it was yep. so good. Like there was so much good stuff in there. I couldn't believe it. And yep. so I, I think that's actually a way to like quickly win super fans is that you like, you challenge those expectations. You sort of go, hey, you think you know what this is, but then actually it's something really different. And it's, and the difference though, back to our earlier point is about, it's about personality and it's about, again, it's about feeling. It's about helping them see the world in a different way and giving them a new way to feel about something or making them feel like they're not alone, right? Like the way you write about something, all this thing, no one's ever described to them in the way they feel it. You, you're being empathetic, right? Which kind of goes back to marketing, right? Good marketing is, is about empathy. And so I think you can use, you know, you can put a little, again, you can put a little cheese whiz on the broccoli, right? You can write a, a, a listicle title if it gets people in the door. And it's not, it's not a listicle if you actually deliver on it. It's not clickbait if you deliver on it, right? If you actually yeah. give something helpful and meaningful. And so, yeah, I don't know. That, that's, this is the little pep talk I give myself when I'm feeling that pull to do something more like annoyingly <laughs> intellectual or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, maybe to use another analogy, you have to, you have to hook people and you have to hook the fish and then you have to reel them in right but you can't reel them in if you never hooked them in the first place and so i mean yeah sometimes you have to give them sort of like this really clickbaity title possibly i think that you know youtubers i've heard some people who are youtubers create a lot of videos that's especially true in youtube where it's a lot of browsing and scrolling and like mm. you have to work hard to get people to click on a video and a, you know a video is a big commitment and you know, it's not, a, you can't, it's not as a skimmable as in like an article, right? So right. it's like, it's a big deal. So you have to really hook people in. But if you don't deliver, then you lost their trust. Yes. If you do deliver, if you do reel them in, now you have super fans. Now you have advocates. Now you have people who are loyal, you know, followers, watchers, subscribers, etc. We've probably already touched on this a bit, but I'm curious just to hear your thoughts on how you use psychology or psychological frameworks, examples, experiences to be more 
persuasive and do better marketing more in the formal sense? Yeah, so this goes back to there's for a long time now in in the world of mental health and, and psychotherapy, we've known that the, what are called common factors in therapy are much more important than specific factors. So something like, can you build good rapport with your client matters way more than like, I subscribe to this particular weird like orientation to therapy. I do cognitive behavioral therapy or I'm a Freudian or I'm a like, that stuff is way less important than just like, can you be a, like a compassionate human being who really like pays attention to and is curious about and you know creates a safe space for someone and also like challenges them when they need so th this kind of like the, it's the human factors that really matter i i think that is exactly the same approach to that that's how i think about my work online is that like it really is about yeah it's it's just about cre like creating intimacy and sort of like trust with like with your readers or, or your listeners or whoever, whoever it is, right? It's about the, it's about the relationship. And, and there's, it's, it's a hard thing to kind of, you have to kind of stumble your way into it, but there, but you can find, you know, examples of, of people who do it well, or even just think about your own, you know, what do you really resonate with? And so that's, I don't know. I, I feel like that's been I, more so than like, I learned about this like mental model and heuristic from, you know, the book persuasion or something like, I don't, I don't do a lot of that, honestly. I think it's more the the biggest lesson I've taken away from being a therapist for six years and studying psychology for, you know, another six years on top of that is just that like being yeah, I don't know, but like being an authentic, warm, compassionate human being and being being genuinely interested and just like really following your your curiosity. And I think that is just that's like the ultimate like psychology hack is just like mm. be a normal human being because there's so many people online who are trying to be experts and they're trying to be the psych marketing person and they're trying to be the what and i don't know there's just way too much content and what people actually want is connection not content mm. yeah there's a there's a chapter in one of gary vernichuk's books i forget which one but he like goes through he has like these really like meaty seven chapters that are like super super tactical and I think it's like, you know, the last chapter is like care and it's like, that's it. That's the chapter. Just care. <laughs> and you're like, that really makes you think you're like, oh my gosh, like, you know, all this is for not if I just don't care about my audience, if I don't care about who I'm trying to teach or help or, you know, sell something to in order to add value to their lives. Like if you just care, it kind of solves all those. That's like the, the biggest common factor, right? Is like, just care, just be authentic. Like you said, just be a good human being <laughs> who can add value to other people. And then like the rest will take care of themselves. Well, and, okay. And here's my, let me go, let me take that another layer deeper. Cause I'm, I'm a listener to this podcast. I'm like, yeah, yeah. I care about your audience. Like I know I've heard that before. like, blah, blah, blah. I, I here's the like counterintuitive thing I would, in terms of how do you actually do that? Or like, what does that actually mean? That like, that sounds like a cliche, be more selfish. Like if you want to care better and empathize with people, I actually think you need to be more selfish. And what I mean by that is you need to be, it goes back to this point we talked about earlier. You need to be kind of ruthlessly selfish about what am I actually interested in? What am I actually good at? Like how can I uniquely be valuable to people? Because if you don't answer that question honestly, if you're not really, really honest with yourself about that, you're going to be giving something people that to people that isn't actually helpful. Like you, you are only going to be able to optimize your helpfulness and value and therefore your marketing and your sales and all that kind of stuff. I think if you really understand yourself 
basically. And so when I say be selfish, what I mean is like be more self-aware and be more, but be more self-aware in the sense of like, no, like what, what really lights me up? Like what matters to me? What am I kind of weirdly like curious about, even though no one else in marketing talks about this or, and again, that's, I don't want this to sound like hippie to be nonsense or like woo woo fuzzy. Like that is a really hard question to really ask yourself, like, what do I actually like? What really matters to me? What am I just really interested in? And that might be, it might be a journey to figure that out. But I think your, your helpfulness is going to be capped by your level of self-awareness about what really matters to you and what you really enjoy and what you really care about. Hmm. Right. I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head of if, if the key is to care a lot, then figure out what you care a lot about. Right. And like you, you can't care a lot if, if yeah. you just, if you don't, <laughs> it's, you know, it's not going to get you very far to, to make this a little bit more practical in that same, in that same vein for you. Have you found that there are things you've identified of like, these are things I, I don't care a lot about. And like selfishly, like I just, I don't like to cover these topics or talk in this way or things you've just kind of cut out from your normal or, you know, things you feel like you should cover, but that you don't cause you don't care that much. Like any kind of practical examples of how that applies for yourself. Yeah. So I can think of a couple, like in my work online that come, that I've been dealing with recently that might be good, illustrative. The first one is with, with podcasts in particular with my podcast. When, when I started it, I had like, you know, I just, I really, I'd had a couple little like hobby pro- podcasts for a while, but I wanted this one to be substantial. I was interviewing experts in mental health and I wanted it to be more of a flagship podcast. So I, I did the usual thing. I got like, I got intro music and I, you know, recorded this, you know, you know I made it sound like a good podcast show. There was an introduction and I talked about, but like I, what I was finding is when I was going, I'd record an episode, which I loved, but then I was really dragging my feet on editing. I was like, Oh God, I got to sit down and edit this thing. And in particular, I, I actually liked re-listening to the conversation. It was all the other little stuff. Like I got to put the introduction together. I got to decide, you know, I got to make sure like the levels are all right. I got to, you know, slice this up. And, and I was just like, I don't like that stuff. So, <laughs> so like a couple months ago, I just decided I'm not doing any introductions. My podcast is just starting with, hey, Corey, how's it going? <laughs> no intro music, <laughs> no intro to the person. Like I'm just diving right in. And I don't know, is this the long-term solution? Maybe not. Maybe this will be a terrible decision. And, but like my, my process is basically, again, being kind of selfish. Like this thing keeps being a pain in the ass to me and it's causing me to procrastinate. And I don't like procrastinating. And the way to get around procrastinating is do more stuff that you actually enjoy and less of the stuff that you don't like. So I'm cutting it out. And the same, the same thing, I've experimented with my newsletter for various like formats for my newsletter. And a lot of the people I admire, they write newsletters that are very, the newsletter itself is really like a letter. Like it's very personal. It's got, it's the, the, it's actually very conversational. It's, but I honestly, for whatever reason, I like being conversational in my articles, but I just don't have any more left over for the newsletter. And I was dragging, I was thinking like, okay, I should do this thing where I make it more personal and I should have these like, you know, I should bring up something topical or personal in the, in the introduction and then get to my articles or, and I was just like, this is a pain in the ass. I just don't like doing this. <laughs> and so I'm not going to do it anymore. And so my newsletter now is back to my original format, which is just, it's literally just link lists with a little bit of description for me. But it, it's the kind of, it's just very easy to kind of skim and see, is there something I'm interested in there or not? And if not, great, you can pop out. And it's just, it's just easier for me. It's like way easier to put together my newsletter now because I cut out this weird like compulsion I, I felt from other people that I had to have my newsletter be formatted a certain way. So I don't know, hopefully those are two examples of what you're getting at. (laughs) 
No, that that's perfect. You know, it kind of maybe like reinforces this like working theory I have that basically like there there are no bad like marketing strategies or like even take the word marketing out of it. Like there are no bad strategies. It's just like pick your strategies though. And like if you just do them long enough and you do them well enough and you stick to it and you have conviction about it and you enjoy it, then like either you'll love it and or your your audience will love it and and that's enough. But like there is no right or there there really is no right or wrong, black or white way of doing things. It's just pick one and then like you know, one that'll be like your thing. And like sure it might not be the optimal, it might not like generate the most clicks or the most conversions or whatever but you'll love it and your audience will love it. And maybe that'll even like, I forget the saying, but you know, it'll, it'll basically like wash away all sins, right? Like you can mm-hmm. do everything else wrong, but as long as you're just being true to who you are and like the format that you like and the format that people know you for, then nothing else matters because people can kind of skip over all that other junk and they'll sort of, they'll omit the fact that you don't have the fancy letter to begin your newsletter and they just get straight to the links because they know it's you and that's what they come to expect now. Yeah, it's almost like authenticity is the ultimate form of leverage, right? Like eventually yeah, just yeah. being yourself. And I've said, I hate myself for saying that because it sounds so like wishy-washy. <laughs> no, just be yourself, you know? But here's the thing. It's really hard, right? Like we've talked about, there's so many pulls to not be yourself. And if you think being yourself is easy, like you're missing something. You're, <laughs> you're really naive. Like you're missing all those pulls to be, and you're probably being someone else without even knowing it. And so it, I think it, it's very hard work in sort of a nuts and bolts kind of way to really understand how am I being pulled to be someone else? And like, can I limit that and, and stay mm-hmm. focused on, you know, yeah, myself and w- what I am interested in and how I see the world and what, yeah, how I can be uniquely helpful. Yeah. Yeah. It's difficult. I, I'll share a little bit of a personal anecdote for it, but I, it's very timely that we're talking about this now for me personally. And, you know, selfishly, like this podcast is sort of my first kind of selfish, like I just want to, you know, personally satisfy my curiosity and talk to smart people. And so it kind of checks that box for me. But there's some other things where I've been thinking more recently, like, you know, we had a kind of experiment with this uh, weekly workshop series for the Swipe House community. And I think it was great and people love it. The problem is that I don't like sitting through a workshop mm-hmm. for, you know, an hour for something that, you know, could be done asynchronously. Like I'm kind of just like a brat. <laughs> like I'm just, you know, I don't like it. Sorry. And like, I would rather kind of get everything pre-recorded, maybe deliver it through a virtual summit. Like now that's what I'm experimenting with just because mm-hmm. that felt like a drag and that felt like something I was procrastinating on. And I did the first series and then I waited like another six weeks to like send out the invites for the next one. And then right before I was about to hit send, I was like, no, 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 let's just see if they're interested in a virtual summit instead because I feel like that's a, something that's more personally satisfying. Mm. Even I, I would love to, and maybe one day I was telling Jay Kunzo and Jay Klausis the other day on after our call was that I would love to be like you where I just sit down every day and like, I just can't wait to like write when like a blank draft and maybe it's some sort of like placebo effect. But for me, for whatever reason, just like drafting something up in Twitter, like the format of Twitter makes mm. it way friendlier and easier to write. And I sat down, even I tried to write in like my newsletter, tried to write in my blog and I just like couldn't get pen to paper unless it was within a tweet storm <laughs> or like <laughs> open typefully my Twitter thread creator of choice. Like, I don't know what that is. And like, I wish it wasn't that way, but I'm just trying to find like the easiest path to creation 
and maybe it's not optimal, but like, I'm just going to keep following that thread for as long as it serves me. Yeah. And your, your, your Twitter feels like you. And I think there's a lot of people who I, who I've met, you know, Twitter friends who I've actually met in real life. And I'm like, there's like a disconnect between like how you are on Twitter and how, and they're, they're the people I, you tend to skim over, but yeah, it is, it is back to this idea of like fit and like resonance, like what medium, what like topics, what approach just resonates with, with you. And, and that's that like seemingly simple, but actually really hard question of how can I be more selfish in a helpful way, which we don't have a good word for in English, but that is a thing. <laughs> it's a really important <laughs> yeah, thing. Yeah, we I need think. a word for that. <laughs> Yeah, hundred percent. Well, I'd also be remiss if I didn't ask you about your podcast, given that I'm a podcaster, and also I don't know if it's just kind of the, you know, every everyone has a podcast these days, like it's podcast the new blog, but I tend to get a lot of podcasters here on the podcast. So, what's your experience been like with the podcast? What have you learned? Any numbers or sort of metrics you can share about how it's going? Yeah, so it's uh, working backwards. It's it's going fine. You know, I don't know. I, I think I get like. 1500 downloads in the first 30 days for most of my episodes, which is, you know, fine. I, I do probably one or two episodes a month. So I don't really have a consistent schedule. It is completely a, this is a good example of like selfishness. I literally, the reason I started the podcast is because I, I had all these books in my bookshelf that I loved. Like I had this, there's this, a lot of books I like. There's a handful that I like love. I go back to over and over again. And I constantly find myself asking this question of like, man, I, w- I wonder what so-and-so thinks about this. Like I have these like fake conversations in my head with the authors <laughs> and it finally <laughs> dawned on me. Like if I just started a podcast, like I could just get people on my podcast and then I could have conversations with them. So that's literally <laughs> what I did. I just started cold emailing people and saying like, I'm a psychologist. I also have a blog. Like, would you like to come on my podcast and talk about, you know, this book or this idea from your, this article I saw you. And I, I think in over a year I've had two people turn me down and I've got, I don't know, mm. 30 something episodes or something. And, and so it's just totally a, a selfish way for me to get to have conversations with my kind of intellectual heroes, like people I, I really admire. And I, I think because that's why I go into it, I go into it for that. Like, I'm just kind of excited to be like, to nerd out with somebody about, you know, a topic that I care about more and more. I'm getting feedback from my listeners that they, it's sort of like my relationship with Tyler, with conversations with Tyler, which is that they're not always interested in most of the topics, but they like mm. just the conversation. Like it's just fun to hear me kind of nerd out with with one of my peers about something. And so yeah. anyway, that's that's what the that's it's it's called Minds and Mics, and it's me mostly interviewing other professionals in mental health, psychology, that sort of human potential, that that sort of area. But it's very it's very casual and it's just I do it when I feel like it and I don't necessarily have high aspirations for it, not yet anyway. Yeah. Do you find that you kind of get inspiration or content ideas from those conversations or uh, is it more something that's just like kind of siloed and it is content in and of itself? That's a great question. You know, it's weird. I do, but they don't translate very well to my articles for some reason. Like I I have this whole file of, you know, next to like interview questions and then show notes for a given guest. I also have a file that's like questions that came up during the conversation that I had. Mm. And for whatever reason, it's really hard to, for me to, yeah, put those into like article format. So I don't know what I'm going to do with that, but they're, they're there. And I do have those questions and like, maybe there's a spinoff podcast in there or something like where I just kind of riff on the, these questions, but it ha- yeah, it definitely happens. But it, it's one of those weird things that again, back to fit, it just doesn't seem to fit 
my writing style for some reason, these questions that come up during those, those interviews. So, or I just need to get those people back on for part two conversations, I guess. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a tricky one. I have the same kind of dilemma where I feel so inspired and alive and having fun talking to people in the moment. And I have all sorts of questions and things that come up and I'm writing diligent notes, but then I'm like, ah, oh, there's just like so much like context and it's like too much to really like put into like a twi- tweet thread or like a newsletter or a blog post and just like it's a little bit too messy and all over the place it's maybe just better as a podcast and as just like these loose ideas that you can kind of riff on like again like content medium fit it's like i don't know if this is the, the right format the right medium for this type of just like riffing <laughs> open-ended questions brainstorming kind of stuff what do you think about the format for podcasts i don't see very often but i think actually has a lot of potential is the like rotating stable of guests podcast. So one of the first podcasts I ever, it might've been actually the first, actually it was, it was the first podcast I ever listened to consistently. I was looking up a review. I was looking up, I just seen the movie Looper. Have you ever seen the movie Looper with Joseph Gordon? I think so, yeah. Yeah, sci-fi. It's old, right? Yeah, it's a little old. It's probably 15 years old maybe at this point. Uh, okay, yeah, yeah. Anyway, and, and like the, one of the things that came up on Google, speaking of SEO, was this podcast with this guy named John Gruber, who's sort of like a Apple Mac pundit guy and has a daring fireball as mm-hmm. his blog. But anyway, he has a podcast. He called it's called the talk show. And it's, he talks about like, you know, like tech and Apple stuff in particular, but he basically just has this like rotating stable of like 10, like recurrent guests who just come on over and over and over again. And every once in a while he'll pull on some weirdo who hasn't been on before, but it's, it's enough variety to where it never feels like the same person over and over again. But it's, you, mm. you kind of, it's this weird meta relationship. Like you develop a relationship with John and Jason's relationship. And like, it, it's very strange, but like, I'm, I'm curious about that format for, for a podcast where it's more, and people like, like Tim Ferriss does this a little bit and other people bring on recurring guests, but I almost wonder if there's space to make that the main feature of the podcast. Right. And, and so I, I don't know. It, and again, it would be more, it would be doubling down on this idea of personality over content right? That it's about personality and these, the people who you just really vibe with, like get those people back on more and more. Cause that, that vibing energy, I think is, I think people tune in for that more than they realize relative to the content. Yeah. That's definitely like a a lightning in the bottle kind of content where you can't really replicate it. You don't really know what's even going to happen, but it just happens and you just kind of capture it while it's in the moment there. I've been thinking about that actually, because I'm a huge fan and listener of the My First Million podcast with Mm. Sam Parr and Sean Puri. And they always talk about, you know, they have sort of their rotating, well, actually maybe only one. So Andrew Wilkinson is one of their like recurring guests and he's come on a couple times and they always talk about how they get him on when they want to boost their numbers because he's always like the popular <laughs> episode and like he has, you know, a lot of followers everywhere. And so they get a huge uh, boost and whatnot. And, and I love those episodes too. And it is sort of like that, you know, chemistry, lightning in the bottle, just like they're vibing and the conversation evolves and goes down places where, you know, you wouldn't expect at all. And I think that Sam had said something to the effect of like, man, I wish we could just, you know, get Andrew on regularly. I was like, oh, that is a really, I was like, first of all, I think that's a really good format. I was just like, I would subscribe. But yeah. secondly, like I want to be that guy who's like the recurring guest or like, you know, the panel, not necessarily the hosts all the time. Like this is, I just have to do this for like, it's a means to an end just to like talk to smart people. But like, I don't love 
interviewing or like producing an interview podcast. But like, I think I would love being on a panel and like being a recurring guest because like you have all the fun without any of the obligation or sort of like production value. Just kind of like you come and deliver the light in the bottle. That's amazing. I would love that job. So yes, on both fronts. I think it's a, a fantastic forum that has legs. Totally. This gives new meaning to the idea of a podcast network, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A little, a little bit meta. Yeah. The, the interesting part I think there too is I've been, so one of the things I mentioned earlier was uh, content medium fit. And again, I think there are certain types of content that just are inherently better on certain types of mediums. And so I've been thinking about, okay, well, what could I create on Twitter that I couldn't really do anywhere else? And same for a podcast. What can I do in a podcast that I can't really deliver on mm. anywhere else? Same for a video. If I'm doing like a workshop and usually video, I was actually, okay. So here's like how my brain works a little bit. So I was just subscribed to a new YouTube channel by a creator that I've been following for a long time, Dan Roden, who's a creative ILO analytics. And he has a whole bunch of side projects and stuff like that. And cause I was thinking, I was like, why do I watch his vlog? Like it's so simple compared to everything else he does. It's like the simplest thing you could ever imagine. It's him like, you know, doing like these panning kind of frames of like his kids playing and like dogs wrestling and like <laughs> him on a lake and I'm like, okay, well I think I like it because I like just living vicariously through him a little bit. Like I get to get the benefits of being him without being him, but also like just there's such rich imagery and video mm. and it's such an immersive kind of content. Like, I mean, you can't even deliver that on Instagram or like through pictures. Like it has to be through video. Podcasting is amazing for storytelling and for mm. conversations. Like if you read a transcript of an interview, it's the dullest thing in the entire <laughs> world. Like you couldn't pay me to read through it. <laughs> Tweets are so like quippy and snappy and fast, but like it's really, really punchy that you can get a lot of information in there. Uh, it's kind of the ed- edutainment. So anyways, I, I think that there's legs to that format of like a panel kind of recurring, you know, talk show with different guests could uniquely work for a podcast. Yeah. All right. We'll have to experiment a little bit. Be selfish. Okay. <laughs> right. That'll be one of your, one of your next selfish <laughs> endeavors. Well, Nick, I think I've taken enough of your time. It's been an amazing exploration. I just have two final questions for you in the wrap up here. One, I'd love to take a peek at your kind of personal swipe fell as it were, and just to some marketing examples, campaigns, inspiration that you think are worthy of saving any uh, piece of writing creators, Super Bowl ads, anything in particular stands out to you as you know, you're sampling from it, or you just think it's, it's amazing marketing. Yeah, so sticking with the theme of writing, I'll, I'll stay in that lane. I, I think I mentioned earlier, there are two like writers in particular I, I learned a ton. Of, they don't write really about the same content, but I learned so much from them in terms of like how to write like a human being <laughs> in a way that people really relate to and, and just connect with. And their names are Tom Kugler and Michael Thompson. Um, and they're both, they write primarily on, on Medium, but they, they do stuff on other platforms. But they're just such great examples of, I think, writing in a way that's really humane and it's very empathetic. And, and this is going to sound kind of smushy, but it, they're, they're, they just feel like you're having a conversation with a good buddy. And that's such a cool thing if you can tap into that sort of element to your writing. So yeah, if you, if you are interested in writing more of like that, study the hell out of those two guys like that. That's really where I learned 90% of that from in my experience. So yeah, those would be, those are my personal people in my swipe file. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Those are great. I'll link to those in, in the show notes and final question for you. When I say everything is marketing, it's the title of the show. What does that mean for you? Like what comes to mind? 
So this is a little nerdy, but I took a class in, I was prepared for this question, by the way. I, I love this question. I love listening to your other guests <laughs> answer this. I took a, this weird class in college called the Trivium, which is this back in like the day, like in ancient, you know, ancient Rome and like the midi, like middle ages, the, the, the way like the curriculum was structured was that the three like core subjects were grammar, logic, and rhetoric. So you had to understand like the structure of language and like how it actually worked if you wanted to be, you know, put it all together. Logic, you had to be able to like, reason well and put together like arguments that actually made sense. And then rhetoric, which was, I mean, in one way you could say marketing. And the, the idea was that it doesn't matter how good you understand the, the technical aspects of language. It doesn't matter even how brilliant your ideas or your conclusions are, how tight your logic is. If you can't present it in a way that is meaningful and like resonates to people, who cares? It doesn't matter at all. So you, it's easy to think of like rhetoric or like how you communicate something as secondary to like the substance or the logic or like the, the idea, but it, you, those don't matter if you don't have rhetoric, if you don't have marketing. So I think, yeah, that's just where my mind goes when I think everything is marketing because literally nothing is going to land if you don't think about and be thoughtful about how you are communicating it and how it is going to resonate um, with other people in particular. And so I think, yeah, it's all about marketing <laughs> from that level. So, Well said, Nick, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for sharing everything, for being vulnerable, transparent, and for brainstorming as well. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me on, Corey. It was a ton of fun. Thanks again to Nick for coming on the show and make sure to check out Nick's website, nickbignall.com and subscribe to his newsletter. It's really, really fascinating. And if you can spare a moment, click on the link in the show notes and pop on Twitter to thank him for sharing everything today. Let him know what you thought. It'd mean a lot for me and for Nick. And to wrap up, here are a few of my takeaways. Firstly, I loved Nick's insight about common factors versus specific factors. It's better to be friendly than a genius. And this is true in life and in marketing. It's better just to get the fundamentals right and create valuable content than to figure out the next you know, growth hack or whatever it is. Secondly, care. Really figure out what you care about. It's hard to promote stuff you don't care about. In fact, frankly, it sucks. That's what a sellout is. So it's better to figure out what you truly care about, and then that gives you a huge advantage in whatever you produce and the way that you promote it. And finally, I loved his thoughts on rhetoric. Rhetoric is a lost art. The dictionary defined it as the art of effective or persuasive speaking or writing, especially the use of figures of speech or other compositional techniques. Copywriting and marketing is an ancient art. I mean, study rhetoric to get better at the fundamentals. If you've got a question or takeaway you want to share from this episode, you can actually do so in the Swipe Files community. You can chat with guests of the podcast as well as a bunch of other top-notch marketers. Join a community that will help you do your best work and be prolific. Check it out at swifiles.com slash membership. You can also get my free newsletter, Marketing Weekly. It's a curated digest of the best marketing content in your inbox every Sunday. And finally, check the show notes for all the important links. And if you could do me a quick favor, hit that subscribe button wherever you are and leave a review so more people like yourself can find the show and help me grow the podcast. And with that, I'll see you in the next one.